0: a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Just little known back to the day every little thing's gonna be a-okay. a-okay. Little known fact about my guest today, she actually learned about Juilliard watching the film Save the Last Dance. Well, she ended up getting into Juilliard, and now she's a Tony-nominated actress. Welcome, Jekina Kalukango, to the podcast. A-OK. okay I am so thrilled to welcome Jekina Kalukango, who is a Tony-nominated actress. Um, what is it like to hear a Tony nominee, uh by by your beautiful name.
2: Oh my goodness. It's. I think I was in shock for a very long time, but this has been a dream since I was 14 and found out what theater was. And I mean, to be nominated with, with all of those amazing women who I've looked up to for a very long time is just quite honestly amazing. <laughs> Let's
0: go back to being 14 um, and sort of your understanding what the Tonys are and what this, Possible life could look like as an artist. Where were you when you were 14?
2: So at 14, I um, was in Atlanta, Georgia, and I went to this uh, performing arts high school named Tri-Cities Art School, but it was was a predominantly Black um, high school, and it was a performing arts program within a regular high school, (laughs) to clarify. Um, So yeah, I grew up I mean, we did musicals and plays like Serafina and Pearly. And my senior year, I played Aida. So I was, I was pretty much learning as I went along um, about what theater was at, starting at 14. It was not something I, I thought about before then. Um, and I mean, even with Juilliard, I thought, <laughs> I, I think about Save the Last Dance because I feel like that was how I was introduced. And a lot of people were introduced. <laughs>
0: That's a legitimate, that's a legitimate introduction.
2: Right? And you're like, oh my God, what if that's the audition? (laughs) Totally not the audition, but it was not exactly. Yeah, it's it, it was pretty amazing. So I mean, once I I kind of started doing plays and figuring out the actresses that I looked up to and performances that I loved. I mean, I just kind of immersed myself into it and was like, okay, I have to train. I have to do this. I have to go to college for this and make a career out of it. So you grew up
0: in Atlanta and mm-hmm. and had that wonderful experience of of being in school and having access to doing these. I mean, the, the shows you mentioned, those are really um, not your average, you know, it wasn't Annie, right? Like you were doing really no. <laughs> sophisticated, um, uh, nuanced characters in the shows that you're describing. Was there a teacher or a mentor? Was there someone in your house that loved, uh, theater or the performing arts also? Like, what, like, how did you even know? Did you happen to walk into an auditorium one day and be like, oh, look what they're doing? Like, how did
2: you... I mean, <laughs> I think I owe it to my counselor in middle school. Um, uh, She saw me, oh my God, at a horrible talent show audition. And it it was really bad. Like I sang to a a track um, that was, it was not like a karaoke track. So I was singing like to a person that was already singing a song. (laughs) And trying to sing it, it was so bad. And somehow she was like, I think you should audition for this high school um, for their performing arts program and then so I did and I mean I, I auditioned with like uh, Star Spangled Banner and a monologue that I found off the internet right I mean completely green to the whole experience and um, I had these are my three well four um, really great mentors at that school. Um, Robert Connor, David Cote, Miss Axum, who was the dance teacher. Those two were my acting teachers. Um, Tuanana Baluku, who was also the active teacher as well. Um, and just right off the bat, like you said, at my first show, we were doing South African accents with kids dealing with apartheid. So they, they very much, um, I guess gave me the foundation, um, and just grounded me in the truth of who I am and my collective experience um, as being a Black person in the world. I mean, they they really, really instilled a lot of that great foundation in us very early on. And it was serious. I mean, you had to come to rehearsal dressed in all Black. If you didn't have your Blacks, you couldn't get in. (laughs) And we were like the only um, all black school that was going to these one at play competitions and winning state competitions. And so it was it was a really great experience.
0: But four years later, you're a Juilliard. Right. That's unusual. Like most people I talk to, they were like when I was two. Right. Like it was such an early. Were you singing as a little one? Were you like singing in church? Were you singing around the house all the time? Like. Where did you discover this beautiful, beautiful singing voice?
2: Oh my goodness. I don't think I ever felt comfortable singing. I mean, I would sing in the back of my mom's car. She used to say like when I was three and five, cause my mother loved country music. So I was singing Shania Twain and all the <laughs> great country songs in the back of the car. And then I think one Christmas, I got a karaoke machine because my parents were like, well, you love singing so much. And then like two days later, it was stolen. Somebody broke into our house and stole everything. So I think for me, it kind of tarnished my my view of being like, I don't think I want to sing anymore if it's going to be this thing. So I I put it off for a long time. I played the flute in band from third to seventh grade. Um, So it really wasn't until high school. That I, I started singing again and specifically in public, um, especially after that epic, horrible talent competition in eighth grade. So, yeah, and it was a really hard decision because um, I got into Carnegie Mellon also on a full ride for um, musical theater. And then I got into Juilliard for acting uh, with full tuition. So, it was a hard choice because I, I didn't know what, which way to go. <laughs> How did you choose? Oh God! what I mean, I like I said, it was my mentors. I had really great mentors, and I knew it was like, I want to be in New York.
0: Mm-hmm. I
2: want to feel that energy. Um, um, I want to learn from from some of the best teachers. I want to be surrounded by by artists and kids who really want to live, breathe, and do this thing. Um, so th- yeah, it was it was like, okay, I think I can do acting, and I feel like I could just always take voice lessons. <laughs> You know what I mean? Or like, you know what I mean? Try to keep it up. But I was like, I think I really want to study the craft of acting and and figure that out. First of all, were
0: you able to come to New York growing up? Did you come to see theater? Had you been to New York before you came to Juilliard?
2: No. Okay.
0: (laughs) And did you audition in Atlanta or did you come to New York and audition?
2: No, we had, um, it was called Unified Audition. So I auditioned in Chicago. Okay. And at that place, it was like all of the schools you could audition for in that one hotel. Yeah. So my brother took me up, yeah, and I auditioned there.
0: Were you just fearless um, or were you really nervous?
2: Definitely nervous, I think. But also, um, I mean, I felt prepared enough to, to play. And I just had to, to trust like I said, like the foundation, I think that my um, teachers gave me and say, you know, at the end of the day, I auditioned for like five schools. So I always felt like I'll be where I need to be and and not worry about not getting in. Um, but, yeah, it was nerve wracking. And I will say it was even more nerve wracking, probably once you got the callbacks, going to the actual school with people as opposed to being in that space. I mean, I guess it was nerve wracking there too because it would be like one person's name would be read to move on to the next level after like all these auditions. And you're like, oh, girl. wow. So, yeah, wow, yeah, It was but,
0: crazy. So that day you go from like level to level. And then when the right. callback happens, you come to Juilliard.
2: Right, so they call back um, 40, I want to say 40 kids uh, for a weekend. Um, or it might now be a week, I think, cause we were the first, uh, class to do that, to be invited back for a week. And it was a crazy snowstorm. So a lot of kids were having a hard time like, getting to the school anyway. Um, but yeah, and it's just a crazy week. You do exercises with the teachers. They see how you interact, um, with your ensemble mates, um, um, and see how you respond to questions and then, and then you do your monologues. So, yeah. Did you have a good experience there? I had an interesting experience. Tell me. Um, I feel, well, I remember, (laughs) I guess the funny thing is like the the best part of it was for me, of course, when we do Shakespeare, but also my um, singing teacher, Deb Lapidus, who also teaches at NYU. Mm -hmm. I mean, she was the like highlight of my time at Juilliard for many reasons. But um, it was hard initially the first year because I'm a pretty, um, I come from a family of four. I'm first generation Angolan. So, uh, and I'm the baby. So I'm, I'm very far, like my oldest brother's 12 years apart from me and my huh. sister's eight years apart. Wow. So I was a kid while they were having like real conversations. I wasn't allowed to like <laughs> contribute. So I was a pretty silent child. And so going to the school, I remember Um, What is it called? You know, I guess at the end of the year or the end of the semester, all of the teachers meet and they talk to you about what you need to work on or, Mm -hmm. or, you know, or or what you're not doing great in. And somehow, I guess some people, some of the teachers felt like my silence, um, my silence was judgment as opposed to listening because that's how I learn, And then it took my other teacher, my musical teacher to say, well, don't you notice how she uh, uh, absorbs information and how she excels? Like, no, it's not that. And, and like literally had to change that atmosphere. But that's a lot of what I was dealing with. I, I think people just, there was not a great um, conversation about how to deal with diversity and what that looks like for different people coming from different communities. Um, and so some of that was hard, especially voice and speech work. I'm Southern <laughs> from Atlanta. So, you know what I mean? You felt like, I, I felt like people were trying to strip me of, of everything I was and and it was that growing pains of just being like, no, you're getting, you're getting tools to add in your toolbox. This is not you having to remove anything else. So a lot of it was trying to I guess tear yourself down and build yourself back up again by the end of your senior year and and move out. And that's what it was. It was a little difficult to kind of maneuver that.
0: How do you hold on to yourself when that's happening? Mm-hmm. Do, do you and other students form bonds and kind of give each other support through that process? Did you make good friends?
2: Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I had Danielle Brooks, <laughs> my best friend. We we were in the same class and Corey Hawkins and I mean I had a lot of great help too from other um um other classes ahead of us too to just talk about where we were in the process of telling us like it's okay, second year is the dark year, everybody goes through it. Right. You know, there's sunshine at the end of the tunnel, and um yeah, but I was I was very lucky to have Really great classmates. Um, and a lot of them, I, I mean, they're extremely talented um, human beings and really generous spirits. And so we always felt safe and we would have the hard conversations about race. I remember there being hard times the first and second year, but they were so brave to do that before it was a thing. You know what I mean? To do really. You mean get with,
0: in. with instructors, like in the community. Yes, with
2: instructors and uh-huh. us in the room and trying to figure out how to move forward. Yeah, it was really great. Hmm. And did you get cast well? I totally feel like yes. I mean, I was given incredible opportunities. Mm -hmm. Now, did I rise to the occasion of those opportunities? I don't know. But (laughs) I mean, I got to play Hedda Gobbler and then Portia um, in Merchant of Venice. So I felt like, yeah, I was given pretty, pretty great opportunities. Um, And then I, I think the greatest thing was probably our playwriting program. Um, because we got to develop those relationships. So Katori Hall was uh, uh, one of the playwrights who I, she's literally my favorite playwright. And so we have a great relationship and um, to be able to foster that at school and then continue that when we got out was just great. You know what I mean? Like Incredible. She's
0: incredible.
2: Isn't she? Yes.
0: (laughs) I mean, that you got to work with her during college. I mean, that's, well, We'll give you that. We will give Juilliard that. One hundred percent.
2: And a lot be- of that is is really due to Jim Houghton and the Signature Theater. He was he was just the, the beacon of light in changing the program and making it more inclusive and and making sure we had community meetings where we could invite artists and political activists and stuff to meet and talk to everybody. And bring uh, all the um, disciplinaries together and, and talk. It, it was a really great experience.
0: What was your first professional job when you got out of school?
2: What was it? Um, oh, it was at the Hangar Theater. It was Once on This Island, and oh. I played T Moon. Oh. Yeah. Oh That's,
0: That's a really right. good
2: first one. Uh huh. That's a special well, musical. Guess- that was actually in college, though. I think I was still in school it, because it was during the summer. But but um, if we're talking about first production after I graduated, it <laughs> it was like the second cop, I think, and like rent. It, I was I was um, swinging for rent at the time, and that was like the first job. And I maybe did like a week or two before I ended up understudying for Godspell. So it kind of all, like, rushed together in that summer. It was crazy. Were you
0: someone who loved the musical Rent, or was, was that a show that you knew?
2: Oh, yes. <laughs> I love the music. Um, and uh, me and, and one of my classmates, uh, Danielle, we all, we, while well, our senior year, I think, we went to the open call. So it was before we all had Aegis and everything and just tried to go through that process. Needless to say, I got cut the first round. But then... <laughs>
0: You were in ended up getting
2: back around. Yeah, yes. it was crazy.
0: Well, the first time I fell in love with you was when I got to see you in the color purple. But part of why we're here today is to celebrate um your work as uh Kanisha in Slave Play, which is really you know, we'll go down in history, like we'll have Hamilton forever in the world of musicals. <laughs> right. Um, and we'll have slave play forever uh, in the world of dramas that just, or it's also really funny, but it is a, a straight right. play um, that just turned everything on its head. So I know you've talked a lot about it. And so I appreciate <laughs> you talking about it again today because of course. you're nominated for your brilliance but the whole show um, was really life changing for me as an
2: audience member. So tell me how it changed you as a performer. So it's it's so interesting. I I got the audition um about a, a month, a month and a half after my father passed. And so it was it was a hard time and I didn't know <laughs> if, you know what I mean, I wanted to to go to be a part of that process but I feel like I needed to in a way to also deal with my stuff to make sure I don't go down the dark path so I was like let me get let me try to get this on the stage and walking into the audition room I mean Jeremy O'Harris and I love Robert O'Hara I worked with him before so their energy's right off the back. I was ready to come in and work, and they 're like okay sit down <laughs> let 's talk let 's talk about what you 're about to walk into because um we received you know the the hate and um that they received off Broadway was just so unwarranted and and uh, and just okay. volatile. you know what I mean It was very ugly, um and they wanted to make sure I was prepared for that if if, if um if they chose me and um, I've never had that in the audition, especially. You know, you mean you just talk to talk to people like that. And so I was like, okay, I feel one very comfortable to now play in this world. Um, and it was the same energy when I walked into the room. I mean, the artists—they're all incredible. I mean, it's—I it, was literally in awe of them. <laughs> Have you seen it? So you hadn't no, seen it because you no, were my at friends, home. Right. I was in Atlanta and my friend Tiana was in the uh, off Broadway. So I didn't get to uh, see it with her, but I talked to her um, about it and, and through the audition process and stuff. And I mean, they're just an incredibly brave um, group of people. They just bare their souls every night. Um, and... I knew that like uh, there was no way I did not want to be a part of 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 this and what it could say and I love the fact that there was no clearer ending for people that it left people saying you know what um you have to pick and choose who you <laughs> who you're going to be out in the world after this are you going to do the work are you going to keep ignoring yourself there was this ginormous mirror (laughs) on the stage where you get to see people literally one of the most I, i hold slave play um in my heart as just one of one of the best um theatrical experiences i've ever had and, and for so many reasons, the fact that, like you said, I mean, the challenge in itself of speaking for like 20 minutes and and, <laughs> and trying to figure that out and also dealing <laughs> uh, with race um, and in such a provocative way in, in interracial relationships and, and, and what it stood for in the metaphors of, of I guess, academia and, and other worlds and what that looks like in institutions. Um, Never did I imagine that this would be a play that everyone would talk about. I mean, people from restaurants, people on the street, like something where you're like, wait, what? Everybody is talking about this thing and that's what theater should do. It it, it created conversations. People were bringing their mothers and parents and aunties and, and partners to these shows and having uh, really hard conversations. Um, so it, that was great and then there was the other side of of those nights where we felt the energy of people who did not want to be there you know who were deeply offended um and and it was hard sometimes throughout the process to not take that into my spirit and try to remain in the space because i mean you're open right you're you're right there everybody's <laughs> in that room together looking at each other in the mirrors you feel that energy and so the minute you it, it hurts, you know, sometimes when, when you get that type of energy, it's hard to push through. Um, but other than that, there, yeah, it was just a life-changing experience. Jeremy O'Harris is crazy. He's a brilliant writer. Um, and, and Robert O'Hara is fearless and the cast is fearless and everybody, it, it was a family, everybody, it just felt safe. But that's the one thing I will say with, with something as intimate and, um, um, I guess hard as that play was, it never felt unsafe to me. And we had a wonderful intimacy director, Claire, um, who came and, um, and helped us create these situations all together. And we figured out how to do that also with our understudies because it would be different um, with them. So they were very much a part of the rehearsal process too, which never happens, right? And you're like, <laughs> no, we all have to be comfortable and feel good and um, so I,
0: it was great. How Mm -hmm. does one create a room where you feel like you can say everything that's in your heart out loud? How is a safe space like that created?
2: Well, there were um, a couple of moments. I remember we had, um, I'm forgetting the exact name, uh, but we had a a group um, specifically come talk to us and they led a workshop dealing with race, um, and it was everybody from producers to um, staff at Level Forward to, I mean, <laughs> people in accounting to everybody who was involved in this production was were placed in this room, and we had real conversations. Um, that was number one, so everybody could get on the same page, at least about that. Mm. Um, also, Paul is different, too, because he's a Canadian, so it was hard for him, too, to, to step into that environment not fully understanding um all that it entailed and for me it wasn't so hard because i mean i grew up in atlanta georgia i remember going to um going to plantations and picking cotton and visiting uh slave burial grounds and and native american burial grounds in elementary school so (laughs) a lot of the things weren't like far-fetched from my memory of, of you know what it meant to be a black woman in this world. But um, I I told Paul, I think initially of like, it was, I always looked at it from the relationship standpoint, the fact that they were married, they were the only married couple out of the two, meaning they already had a commitment to each other. So that in itself allowed me to know that love has to fully be there at the center. And on top of that, it it starts uncrumbling, but the love is still there. And, And then what does that do? right if we can't ever break that but the love has to always be there it, especially in the beginning i had to make that a point <laughs> you know what i mean like even even that whole uh first scene of like you know but i don't know it's um now i lost my train of thought but in terms of being a safe space, yeah, Robert O'Hara just set us all down, and they—I was already—I was coming in also as the new person. They've already established a connection and a relationship to each other um, from the off-Broadway production, so I had to like come in and like hurry up, try to learn these lines, and then go. But also be be there and be present. And they were also lovely and um, welcoming and. I don't know it's just such a good spirit it's it's a it's a different thing when you have people who who one come in to do the work but who are great human beings while they're doing the work and even in the moments that are difficult they're always going to be great human beings and having that as the basis I think will always helps in anything that's difficult because at the end of the day we're all actors right we're coming in and like This is not real life. This is not who we are. We have to understand and give each other the grace to be as ugly as possible towards each other, but know that there is a line. And if we ever feel like there is a line that is crossed, let's talk to each other so we can make sure that doesn't happen again. And and that's what we expressed. We just all tried to figure out where's our line, where where what couldn't be crossed, what was the absolute no, and how far could we go. And and that's what it was about, just building up to that.
0: So, what is it like to? To be a part of something that changes the narrative of how people think and talk about race. Can you process that?
2: You know what's interesting? I don't think we could at that moment because I don't think the world um, was at a place where they could even process it. Um, And it took (laughs) COVID and all of these. horrendous murderings of Black people um, and Amy Cooper and the Karens and the list of people to actually where I feel like the the conversation can now happen because I think people were coming in, um, and Jeremy O'Harris has a great way of saying this, like people were coming and being like, I voted for Obama, <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm not racist, it doesn't exist. And then the world happened in 2020, right? And, and, and now we're, we're faced where none of this is far-fetched. It's all, all bubbling under surface and it's, and it's here and it's present. Um, and so I now feel like slave play can now exist in a place where people can, can start to have these really honest conversations um, uh, about race. But before, no, I, I do feel like there was a, a bit of um, a block
0: I want to just go to this moment where even though we are in COVID and the Tonys didn't happen this year, and it was very confusing sort of what it would all mean when they announced there would be nominations. Um, But there were nominations even in this strange Mm. time. And it makes me so happy when I talk to friends who were nominated that it still felt magical, even under the circumstances. So 14 year old you, wakes up a couple of weeks ago and your name is announced by sweet James Eigelhart, who's kind of telling all the great people um so the genie from Aladdin says your name and are you awake well it's noon so you're awake they did it unless you had a night shoot the night before tell me like what happened
2: you know, it was so funny. I wasn't going to watch before. And then my best friend, um, Chris, he called me and he forced me. He said, no, we're doing this together. Because, I mean, we, um, I go back with him from high school. We were in the drama program together. So <laughs> he was like, no, we're doing this. So we're going to watch it. We love you, Chris. <laughs> Let's say, yes, Chris. Um, and it happened. And he started crying with his mom, and I was just like speechless. I don't think I registered for about maybe two hours after. I think the first I was initially just shocked, and then it was then it was the text messages of like, oh, and then not only did you, did you get nominated, but there's like twelve nominations for Slave Play, and I'm just like, what is happening? It was insane, um, and. And, you know, you think of all of those things. Of, I, I think even about my friends who didn't get a chance to open their shows, right? And who, cl- I mean, they were going to open on the night that in Broadway It's know. just like, oh. Heartbreaking. You think about all of that and all the people who are out of work. And I think about everyone at the Golden Theater who, who made it happen from the ushers to the bartenders, to everybody. I mean, it was such a beautiful place to work. And so to feel that, the work was being still honored. I mean, it was a great feeling. It was beautiful. It really was. And, and my family enjoyed that moment with me too. So it was, yeah, it's everything that you've been working for. You're like, see my, I told you I didn't need to go back to school. <laughs> no, you did not need a backup plan. Oh my God. My mom was trying to give me a backup plan, like maybe four years ago. <laughs> Is that right? It was like, girl, you need to go back to school. So I was like, Yes, more incentive to not. (laughs) That
0: is so incredible. Um,
2: Where are you right now? I am in Vancouver.
0: And why are you in Vancouver?
2: Um, I am starting uh, to film the Mahalia Jackson biopic here in Vancouver. And Kenny Leon is directing and Danielle Brooks is starring as Mahalia. So I'm excited.
0: And so how far (laughs) into the shoot are you?
2: We just started, like, today's the first day of shooting.
0: (laughs) And are you working today? No. Okay. Not today. And how many COVID tests have
2: you had since you got this job? I don't even know. There's too many to, (laughs) I feel like every day something's in my nose. I don't know.
0: (laughs) Well, also, uh, where did you shoot Lovecraft Country?
2: Atlanta.
0: You were home. Oh, yeah, what I was is home. That like? What is that like to come home
2: and shoot? It's beautiful. It's yes. beautiful.
0: <laughs> I'm like, yes, this is what it feels like to be an adult. <laughs> yeah, it's incredible.
2: Yeah, it was really beautiful. The atmosphere, like, again, it was just really great artists um, and people who I respect and I mean, my little days on that set, it was beautiful. And they worked around um, slave places. So sometimes I would have to come back and shoot. And it was just lovely. Everyone, every single person was incredible.
0: Now, what is your, do you have a child? I do. Okay. <laughs> I thought you did. Um, how, a boy or a girl?
2: A boy. He's so going to be four.
0: He's going to be four. So mm-hmm. you were doing that play with a teeny tiny child yep at home Mm
2: -hmm.
0: okay i don't even have a question
2: (laughs) (laughs) look i mean he was my saving grace my my luckily i i have a great um mother who came up to new york um and so she she kept my child while i was on stage Mm -hmm. and she would bring him uh he would come to set some days if it was a two-show day and so the family loved on him. I the understudies and like take him upstairs and watch movies and play with him. Like they were all so sweet and he just loved the stage. Um, and so he's like, mommy's on Broadway. Cause my picture was like everywhere, which was insane. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was so sweet to share that moment with him. And I took him to see the Lion King and that was his first Broadway experience. And I, it made me so happy. <laughs>
0: So you would come off stage sometimes and he'd be there at the theater?
2: Never. No. Before oh, only, or after? Only on a two-show day, yes. Right. Two-show days, yes.
0: That's pretty wild.
2: Yeah. And that that those days helped a lot yeah. to get me out of that funk. Yeah.
0: Were there things mm-hmm. like post-show or pre-show rituals that were pretty consistent for you?
2: You know... I think it changed a lot. It it, it depended on the day. Um, I would listen to gospel music. Sometimes I'd listen to Rihanna and Beyonce. <laughs> or sometimes we'd make jokes with each other on, on the microphone and just do like skits before we all went on. I mean, we had a pretty silly group of people. So we tried to keep it as light as possible for as long as possible. And then um, in terms of like after show, I mean, I would pretty much collapse, like on the floor, take a moment to just breathe it out. We had to get um, a Reiki specialist to come and just talk to us about energy and clearing it out because we found, I mean, it was as we went along the, some of the months specifically, maybe like December, (laughs) December, January started to get really dark, I think for us. And we don't know if it was winter or just for doing it for so long. And we were like, okay, we have to figure out a way to change the energy. So that we don't carry that with us everywhere we go. So yeah, those things were great, and our producers were great for for giving us those opportunities too. Right. And massages. Healing. Yep, massages were mandatory for me. Had them every week.
0: Had <laughs> you had to Marnier. twerk? Had you had to twerk before this job? Was that? Were you good at that, or did you have to oh, learn how to do that? Oh, twerking is my life.
2: Yes, <laughs> I love twerking. I twerk every day. <laughs> when I wake up, I twerk. <laughs> You're really good at it. You know, I'm going to say yes. My Atlanta self is very good at twerking. I mean, say town. Yep. Um,
0: <laughs> all right. Before I let you go back to work, is there a little known fact about you that you can share?
2: If anybody ever wants to buy me a gift, I love Kit Kats. That is my absolute favorite. And you can never go wrong.
0: You can- <laughs> truckloads there will be truckloads them yes. to your yes. door um congratulations on just all the magnificent things that are happening I look at the roles that you've played from Nettie in the color purple to Cleopatra and Andy and Cleopatra I mean all of it. and and you're working Godspell and and holler if you hear me you know that Tupac musical I feel like we'll have another life
2: mm-hmm. it, it, we're
0: not done It's too good (laughs) and more people need to see it. Um, But is there anything that you are thinking of like that you can tell us is coming up next after this gorgeous film that you're shooting right now?
2: You know, I, I don't know what's next. Um, So that's very exciting. But I know for me, I have really been getting into writing myself. So I've been, um, writing some pilots and some films that I want to get out there um, specifically about um, the history of from uh, where I'm from in Angola so dealing with queens and and just a history that is just untold that you never learn about and and so I want to bring those stories um, to the forefront now so that's where my mind is <laughs>
0: Well from Angola to Atlanta to Broadway <laughs> what? a ride you are so incredible jakina thank you for being with us today thank you for
2: having me i enjoy your podcast so much so thank you thank you for being (laughs) on it all right bye Bye -bye.
0: Thank you to John Zaytoon, who is the talent coordinator for this episode. The Little Known Facts theme song was written and performed by Georgia Famusa with backup vocals by Caleb Famusa, and episodes are recorded in New York City and edited by Nicholas Clark.
1: Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time test to gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried and true bestsellers. It's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.
0: Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived.